0: We never wanted to be in a fancy metropolitan broadcast facility where the most thought-provoking thing within view is an occasional four-car pileup on the freeway below. We like being miles from nowhere, in the middle of a vineyard that cannot be seen from the little two-lane road on the other side of that rise. Our barn has awesome acoustics and was built with hand tools over a hundred years ago. Nonetheless, we've got some really state-of-the-art broadcast technology inside. And our wine cellar, once a root cellar, that is absolutely packed with wine we've collected or been given by friends. Welcome. You have just set foot on Grape Encounter's radio property, where we don't believe in no trespassing signs. But let's make this our little secret. Oh, and that wine is protected by the sweetest looking golden retriever who dated a Doberman for a while, so don't get any ideas.
1: me a grape crush me some
0: ice skin me a peach save the fuzz for my pillow
2: between 90 to 95 percent of the domestic wine consumed in america is made under the warm california sun but there are many states that are getting in on the action some states like oregon and washington now produce an abundance of world-class wines and are experiencing phenomenal growth in production But what's fascinating about our insatiable thirst for wine is the fact that every state in America is now producing it. And many of these wines are scoring high marks at wine competitions and with consumers who are increasingly more open-minded. Even still, I never expected I would ever savor a Cabernet from Delaware, a Chardonnay from Wisconsin, or a Pinot Noir from New England. Nonetheless, an impressive team of scientists, professors of viticulture, grape growers, winemakers, and others have teamed up as the Northern Grape Project, and several of our finest universities are spearheading the effort, one of which is the University of Nebraska, where our first guest, Dr. Paul Reed, works as a highly credentialed educator and researcher in the Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. Dr. Reed is an expert in the principles and practices for better understanding the adaptability of grapes and other fruits to climates like those found in his state, and joins us now from the home of the Cornhuskers. Dr. Reed, welcome to Grape Encounters. You bet. Can you give us an overview of what the Northern Grape Project is and your role in it?
3: I'd be glad to share what I can with you. It's an exciting project, actually, because as you point out, there are 13 states involved But they have a common goal or series of goals, and one of them, of course, is trying to produce a quality wine grape in what one might refer to as somewhat hostile climate conditions. And that describes many of the northern states if one goes across the country from New England to the Dakotas. They all have a lot of challenges in terms of trying to grow what your audience might tend to think of as the important commercial wine grapes such as Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or Zinfandel. Those are not in the cards for most of us trying to grow grapes in this part of the world. And I, like some of my colleagues, have been interested in testing different grapes, many of which are hybrids and many of which are based on Native American grapes. And I've tested close to 100 different cultivars or varieties to determine whether they will, first off, survive our winters, survive the up and down roller coaster of temperatures that we expect in the fall and in the spring. And at the end of the day, after you find grapes that grow well, learning how to vinify them, make them into a quality wine that consumers will be excited about buying and enjoying in the various ways that wine drinkers enjoy wine.
2: So this raises so many questions. I guess the first fundamental question is, why do it to begin with? Is it important to be able to grow the vinifera grapes in these cold regions, or is it better just to stick with varieties that are more cold tolerant?
3: For the most part, it's better to go with these cold-tolerant grapes. Vinifera is, of course, the standard by which other wine grapes are judged. But the hybrids, many of which have some to a lot of vinifera parentage in creating these new grapes, they have the potential to make world-class wines. They don't have familiar names, however, and therein lies the marketing side of things. I'm involved more with the viticulture, the growing of the grapes, testing to determine whether they will survive the rigors of our part of the world, climatically speaking. But we have colleagues that are involved from several of the states that are involved in looking at the wine winemaking side of things, and others who are looking at the marketing and promotion of these less than familiar grape names grapes like Edelweiss and Frontenac and Marquette are not household names for your average wine drinker. And we need our wine buying public to recognize that, hey, this is something worth trying.
2: You know, what's really fascinating to me is I recently judged a wine competition that was a blind tasting, and they did not identify the varietals. And it surprised me how many varietals that I was not familiar with, that other judges may not have been familiar with, that really scored very well when we don't see the name cat. Cabernet or Zinfandel or Chardonnay and we just taste the wines, the perception is altogether different than if we are looking at a name and scoff and say, what's that? I've never heard of that before.
3: Yeah, that's the challenge that we have to try to overcome, obviously. But you, like others in blind tastings, are finding some of these grapes make some pretty fine wine. And I teach a class called Vines, Wines, and You, where we talk about how grapes are grown, what their history is, and that sort of thing. But we also sample wines from many parts of the world. But in addition, I teach aspects of matching food and wine and cooking with wine. These are things that some of our wines that are made by winemakers in the States that we're talking about are making some money on. Yes. So those are good grapes. Uh, to the usual wine drinker, they are unfamiliar names, and they do make good wine in the hands of the right. Yeah, winemaker. in the hands of the right person. I've, had, I've been fortunate enough. I worked in the Australian industry a couple of different times, and have traveled in many other regions, including several of the California industries regions. And clearly, uh, the top-quality wines have to be made from top-quality grapes in the first place, but the winemaker sometimes is in a position to mess it up. Uh, <laughs> Sometimes. You, there are some wines, regardless of where they're from, that coulda, shoulda, as the saying goes, been great wines, and they're ordinary or worse. And that relates to not handling them properly, not vinifying them properly, all the possibilities with which you're familiar, I'm sure. But you got to start with good grapes. And it happens that some of these grapes that are being studied in this research program, uh, the Northern Grapes Project, clearly are grapes that have potential to provide a lot of hedonistic pleasure. Let's put it that way.
2: (laughs) You know, I I think I want to be in one of your classes. When I was going to college, we did not have classes where we could drink wine in the class. You've got a great gig.
3: I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And the students have to be 21, of course, and I have to card them or copy their ID. Yeah. But it's class that's fairly popular.
2: Sounds like it is. We're talking to Dr. Paul Reed from the University of Nebraska Department of Agronomy and Horticulture, part of a project called the Northern Great Project where they're looking at a lot of possible ways for areas that are subject to very cold, very intense climate conditions to be able to make great wines. And we've been talking about the grapes that do grow in these areas, but can you now speak to the idea of making, let's say, a hybrid of a Cabernet or a Chardonnay or a Merlot? What are the prospects for that, and how far along are you on that?
3: Well, I personally am not a great breeder. I test the results of some... Some of the folks who are grape breeders, Bruce Reich at Cornell University, Jim Luby and Peter Hempstead at the University of Minnesota are examples, and they have been using native grapes as part of their breeding program where they use the native grapes to impart cold tolerance. And vigor in the soils and climates that we're talking about, but by hybridizing or crossing them with things like Pinot Noir, for example, is a grandparent, if I understand it correctly, of Marquette, for example, a grape I mentioned a moment ago. Yeah. And so they do try to incorporate into these hybrids the heritage that would impart high quality in terms of wine characteristics.
2: Dr. Reed, tell me the scope of the work that you're doing with the grapes there in Nebraska. And I read something recently that said that there are something like a 1,000 new vineyards that have been planted in areas that would not typically be areas where grapes are grown. It sounds like there's a lot of progress being made. Can you just give us a rundown on where we stand now?
3: Well, Well, you're quite correct. There have been numerous vineyards established and subsequently, in parallel, new wineries established in all the states we're talking about, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, the New England states. Nebraska, of course, is obviously the one with which I'm most familiar. But 25 years ago, we didn't have any wineries in Nebraska, for example, and now we have 30. Wow! And we had maybe 15 acres of commercial grapes at that time. And now I can't guess acreage exactly, but I can say there are well over 100 growers. And wow. the same kind of trends have been taking place in the other states that are part of this Northern Grapes project. So that kind of addresses the question you were asking. And as in places like California and Washington State and New York State where they have a history of production of high-quality wines and and high-quality grapes to make high-quality wines, they don't have the history In some of the other states, we're talking about Nebraska being a good example.
2: Dr. Reed, will you hang on for just a second? We're going to come right back and finish up this conversation. You're listening to Grape Encounters Radio, and we're talking about growing outstanding wine grapes in areas that are not typically known for growing grapes with Dr. Paul Reed from the University of Nebraska.
0: Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson. We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin Wine Access System costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works. Perfectly, The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link online at grapeencounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com.
2: A lot of people ask me why Manzanita Manor's incredible Portuguese dessert wine is called Two Horse. Well, the reason behind the name is as extraordinary as the wine itself. It's because the owner and winemaker at Manzanita Manor Organics actually uses two beautiful horses to pull the plow on her farmland. When you take your very first sip of the Two Horse Vineyard's irresistible dessert wine, you'll immediately experience the winemaker's unparalleled connection to the land. It's what really makes it so good. You can purchase this exceptional wine online, as well as their purely delicious walnut oil, 100% organic heirloom walnuts, and free-trade chocolate-covered walnuts. To learn more about all the Manzanita Manor Organics products, visit mmorganics.com. You can order all their walnut products there and bottles of two horse, of course. Purchase and shipping subject to state and local regulations. Please see MMOrganics.com for more information.
0: And now, Grape Encounters with David Wilson continues.
4: Stop
2: All right, we're back with Grape Encounters Radio and a very fascinating discussion with Dr. Paul Reed, professor of horticulture and viticulture at the University of Nebraska Department of Agronomy and Horticulture. Dr. Reed and a multi-state team of professors and scientists are making noteworthy inroads into the production of mainstream wines in places like Nebraska, where brutally cold winters and a short growing season used to preclude the production of vinifera. What we know as the most popular wine varietals. Dr. Reed, even though growing grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay in the colder northern states wasn't considered a possibility until recently, wines made from grapes that can tolerate the challenging growing conditions of states like yours have been around a while. Just how long have they been making wine in Nebraska?
3: People came to the old Nebraska Territory, emigrated here from the eastern states or the old country, whatever that might have been. They brought with them the things they wanted to grow and they wanted to grow grapes. And then along came Prohibition and that kind of shut them down for a while. But finally, uh, in the, I'd say mostly in the 1990s and into this century, there's been a real trend to try to get good quality grape production and therefore excellent wine can be made from them. An interesting aspect of that, I think, is the fact that people going into the grape and wine industry have two attributes that I think are really important. One of them is that they're passionate about what they do. And you know that from your experience with other wine regions. And the other thing that goes along with that uh, is the attribute of being willing to share information, ideas. Most grape growers and winemakers don't have a lot of secrets. They share success stories. And you know, the old thing about a rising tide floats all boats. One of our best and earliest vineyard and winemaker combinations, guy named Ed Swanson has been kind of our pioneer here in Nebraska. And he always has said, well, no sense other people making the same mistakes I made. So he shares his information with people. And most people in the industry are very much that way. And that's exciting.
2: So tell me some standout wines that you have tasted there. Are you surprised at some of the quality wines? And for somebody who's drinking typical drier reds from California or France or Italy or Spain, what would be something that you would suggest to them from Nebraska? Not that they could even get it, but <laughs> if they take a, take a trip. <laughs> (laughs) out there, they can
3: probably do it. That's right. Uh, And many of our wineries have websites and they do ship. Believe it or not, California is the number one destination outside of Nebraska for our wineries to send wine to.
2: That doesn't surprise me because I think in California, we're interested in other kinds of wine and, you know, we're very familiar with our California wines and they're certainly delicious, but it's fun to drink something from someplace else. There's a lot of experimentation going on and the door may be open for places like Nebraska to introduce products and be well received.
3: I think that's true and in terms of the red wine side of things, some of our wineries make blends that are proprietary names rather than naming them by the variety but we have a lot of I think pretty good reds. Some of them are based on uh, old French-American hybrids like Chamberson some are based on uh, combinations with some of these new hybrids like St. Croix Marquette, Frontenac The state of Missouri isn't part of this consortium, but they have a grape called Norton that flourishes there. And we have found that, at least for part of our vineyards, that Norton is a great performer here. And so it's a good blending grape. In the right hands of a winemaker who knows what to do, it can be made into a good varietal as well.
2: The Norton wines, I think, are quite good, and I've talked about them on the show before. And it's certainly for listeners something to look for if you can find Norton wine. It's it's really quite
3: delicious. It can be, and some of our wineries are doing a pretty good job with it, I would say. And then the white wine side of things, although most of the Midwest white wines are what I'd call off dry or perhaps a semi sweet, they're very very good. They're world class. They compete well with. California Chardonnays and New York Rieslings and other white wines of the world. So, you know, a lot of double gold winners and occasionally wines that are selected as the best white wine in a major competition. One of our Nebraska wineries had a wine selected as the best white wine in the Monterey competition a few years ago, for example. Holy smoke!
2: Yeah. That's amazing. And yeah. there's some pretty amazing wines that come out of Monterey. So <laughs> that had to be a, a shocker, but that's a pleasant surprise to me is there a wine association in nebraska now I've there been,
3: is yeah there is it's called the nebraska winery and grape growers association
2: and, and i take it you work pretty closely with them
3: uh-huh i organize our educational programs like we have an annual conference every year we're already working closely with the nebraska winery and grape growers association to plan the educational program for that conference which uh, will be next march and that'll be the 19th year that we've done that wow uh, So, you know, our history is short, but I always call it a new old industry because, as I mentioned a few moments ago, immigrants here in the days when it was Nebraska Territory or a very young state brought things with them they wanted to grow. And and many of them had cultural heritages that meant they expected to have wine with the meal and expected to grow grapes. And so in spite of a little interruptions like Prohibition and World War One and two, and so on... And just uh, those things, yeah. People will charge ahead and overcome a lot of obstacles. And one of our growers or winemakers says it's easy to make, grow good grapes and make good wine in the Napa Valley, but it takes real skill to do it in the Midwest.
2: Hey, is anybody from California or better-known grape-growing areas doing anything in Nebraska right now that you're aware
3: of? There are two or three anyway who in one way or another, have some background from California, yes. It's not like a Gallo-trained winemaker, but people who have, you know, worked as a cellar rat in a winery in Sonoma or something like that, we have a few that have gained experience from other locations and are now applying that knowledge or that know-how to making classical good quality wines.
2: Well, it's so amazing. You know what, I'm getting this little hint of an idea that I should get some Nebraska wines out here and get some wines from other better-known areas and bring in some wine aficionados and do a little blind tasting just for fun for our audience because, you know, seeing is believing. And I know from experience that you can't make any assumptions about wine production because there are places that you would never have imagined 10 years ago would be making amazing wines, and they're really doing some amazing things. So maybe it's time for a little challenge.
3: Well, this Northern Grapes Project has definitely addressed other challenges, and overcome some of the obstacles anyway, to the point that there are some pretty exciting wines that'd be fun to try and your audience would enjoy them.
2: Okay, well, I'm going to put that on the top of my bucket list. Dr. Rita. I so appreciate you coming on. This is just such a fascinating topic and amazing work that you all are doing and the fact that you've got this amazing group of universities together to take this project forward. I think it started in 2011, right?
3: Yes, it did. And all the participants are can-do kind of people, you know, they really find ways to overcome some of the obstacles. And as we discussed a moment ago, work closely together. They want to share information and help each other succeed at uh, producing a quality wine.
2: Okay, well, that's awesome. Listen, if somebody wants more information, I know they can find a great deal of information on the work that you're doing at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln website, but also the website for the Northern Grape Project is northerngrapeproject.org. And if you want to know more about the topic, that's a great place to go. Dr. Reed, I so appreciate 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 you being on. Thank you so much.
3: It was a pleasure.
2: All right.
0: We'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. Connecting winemakers, wine lovers, wine adventures, and all things wine from around the globe. You are listening to Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson, broadcasting from our wine cellar studio in idyllic Atascadero, centrally located in the Central Coast wine country of California. If you'd like to hear more no-nonsense talk about wine and all the fun that goes with it, check out winetalkshow.com. At winetalkshow.com, you'll find a massive library of content for fun-loving, unpretentious people who aren't afraid to step outside the lines and challenge conventional wisdom. We'll take you places you've never been before. That's a promise. Expand your wine horizons in unimaginable ways at winetalkshow.com.
2: Nestled between world-class Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo wine countries, the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the humble heart of the Central Coast. With access to endless wine country adventures, including wine and olive oil tasting tours, artisan farm experiences, food, wine, and cultural events, historic Atascadero's cozy and oh-so-friendly atmosphere make it the perfect home base for Central Coast tourists. Discover more about the heart of the Central Coast at VisitAtascadero.com.
0: We're all guilty of sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin costs a little bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works. The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Argon gas is injected into the bottle while as little or as much of the wine you want flows right into your glass. The Argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Click the Coravin link at GrapeEncounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. Way up north no, to Alaska. Way up north
3: no, to Alaska. North
0: to Alaska. Go north for Okay. It's time to swirl, sniff, check out those awesome legs, and do what we all do best sip into something more comfortable. And now, suited up in a little number from his Tommy Bahama wine lover's wardrobe, here's the guy who went from hipster to sipster, David Wilson.
2: And we are back with Grape Encounters Radio. Now, if you think it's tough making wine in places like Nebraska, you'll be even more surprised to meet my next guest. Not long ago, I heard about his family's winery located in the most unlikely of places, and I couldn't resist sharing their story with listeners. So I thought since we've been talking about growing grapes and making wine in cold climates, it was only fitting to revisit a place that is affectionately called The End of the road. We have on the line Lewis Maurer. He is the general manager of Bear Creek Winery and Lodging, and they are in a place I have wanted to visit for a long, long time, Homer, Alaska. Lewis, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Good to be here. Are you
2: the northernmost winery in America?
4: That might be safe to say. Yep. One or two other wineries up here, and it might be the same latitude. It's very similar, if not the most.
2: I have listeners all over the world scratching their heads right now going, They don't make wine in Alaska. You can't make wine in Alaska. But they do make wine in Alaska, not necessarily from grapes, right?
4: That's right. We make wine out of what we can grow here, which is blueberries, raspberries, grow rhubarb, things like that. So different fruit, different berries. Tastes good, though, right? The success of our business, I would say, could speak to that. We just let the tasting room do the talking, and it's grown ever since we opened the doors.
2: Let the tasting room do the talking. How long have you guys been in business?
4: About 10 years now.
2: And you are the son in law of the winery founders, owners Bill and Dorothy Fry.
4: That's correct, yeah
2: let's uh, first talk about Homer, Alaska. I've always been intrigued about Homer because there is a really wonderful series of audio cassettes by Tom huh. People always know Tom Bodette as the Motel 6 guy. He is not the president of Motel 6. He is a spokesperson, but he's actually a great writer. And there is a series of works that he has created about Homer, Alaska that are just absolutely unbelievably amazing. How true are those? Do you know?
4: Yeah, they seem to be- be slightly exaggerated, but for the most part, you know, he's not way out there or anything. Do you know Tom Bodette? No. You don't? Uh, no I know who he is, that's about it. But he is one of our famous locals. You uh, ever
2: see him on the streets? No. Really? That's no. A funny. How big is Homer?
4: It's pretty small, it's about 8,000 people.
2: Well, you ought to send him over some wine or something.
4: Yeah, right?
2: He'd probably write a book about it. <laughs> Yeah. All right, I'm going to send him a note and tell him he needs to try your wine. Okay, but we digress. If you ever get a chance, I think actually one of the pieces that Tom Baudet did was The End of the Road, but you got to get the audio cassettes and listen to those because it's done in Tom Baudet's voice, and you get this complete understanding of the character of Homer, Alaska, when you listen to it, which is why I'm so interested in the wines that you're making there because it seems like a really interesting little town.
4: It is. It's got great, fantastic scenery. There's a state park across the bay. There's a lot of art in the town here. We've got three or four galleries that locals make art and put them in there. And really good wildlife viewing to be had. Good skiing in the winter. So it's kind of a little uh, getaway gym up here in Alaska.
2: Are we talking down home? Down home? Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely down home, down-to-earth people.
4: Oh, certainly, yeah. It's kind of the, not to bring politics into it, but you could say it's the Democratic stronghold of Alaska, and that tends to have people that are just more out there doing all kinds of crazy things with art and building materials and that kind of thing.
2: Well, we don't talk politics on Grape Encounters because we figure it this way, that you get two people with diverse opinions together and a bottle of wine in front of them, (laughs) and they will find a lot to agree on. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Would that be something? If Democrats and Republicans became divisive when it came to wine, like, no, we only drink whites. No, we only drink reds. <laughs> Split it along some political lines. That yeah. ain't never going to happen. You know what? Never going to happen. So nope. you're, you're making wines out of all kinds of pretty cool things, fruits and whatnot. I actually judged a big wine competition, an international competition recently, and I was surprised. I, I actually got an opportunity to judge some of the fruit wines and, you know what, you sometimes can't tell that they're not made from grapes.
4: Yeah, it's kind of crazy what you can do with some fruits. Some of them, you're never going to get rid of the overwhelming fruity characteristic, but some, uh, like blueberries, are probably the closest thing that we use to a grape, and they've got similar skin texture, tannins in the skins. They've got nutrients in there, just like grapes do. You don't need to add nearly as many nutrients to those as, as you might need to some of the other wines, like a rhubarb wine. So yeah, we do a cold soak on the blueberry wine, just like you would with some grape wines. So yeah, you can end up with some of them very similar characteristics.
2: Hey, we're on a very long distance call on Grape Encounters Radio. We're talking to Lewis Maurer. He is the general manager of Bear Creek Winery in Homer, Alaska. Homer known as the end of the road. I guess it's the end of the road, but not the northernmost part of Alaska. That's, what, Anchorage?
4: Even further up, the Arctic Ocean, Barrow, and that area where the oil Yeah, Barrow, are.
2: but they don't make any wine in Barrow, nope. do they?
4: definitely not. Not that I'm aware of. Maybe anyway. they
2: make an oil wine, something yeah, right. like that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. A bunch <laughs> of guys sitting around on the tundra going, we need to make some wine. Maybe we'll make it out of yeah, oil. oil. Yeah. yeah, they seem to
4: make a lot of things out of whale fat, so maybe they try that. Who knows? Whale fat wine. you got to yeah, try
2: the Arrow Alaska Whale Fat Wine. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's your favorite Bear Creek wine that you guys make? I know you bring some grape juice up from the lower 48, right?
4: We do. We Bring that up and do some blends in with our locally grown and produced fruit wines. But my favorite, you know, how it goes, it depends on the meal and all that kind of thing. But right now I'm really partial. We've got a black currant reserve going that I've worked on since I started here to generate a recipe for. And it's turned out really, I think, really good. So that's been that's my favorite right now is our, our black current reserve.
2: Can you ship wines down to California?
4: We can actually, yeah.
2: So here's what I want to do is I want to get some of your wines, and then what we're going to do is we're going to get a studio full of guinea pigs. Okay. And we're going to put your wines against some other wines, maybe some local wines, some California wines because they make some pretty good wines in California. Oh yeah. So we're told, right? right. What we'll do is we'll do a little tasting, you know, and if if your wines are sweet, then we'll put them up against some sweet wines, and let's see what we can do. Let's surprise the world. You want to? Yeah,
4: that sounds like a lot of
2: fun. We'll do a competition like that. Way back when, we did a competition between a California winery and a Texas winery that was pretty hot on their wines, Uh and they threw down the gauntlet. I gotta tell you what, Lewis, they absolutely insisted that they could take on any California winery, and they could do very well. So what we did was we got a bunch of listeners Together and we let them do the judging and they got to enter a red wine and a white wine and when it was all over when the dust had lifted and they saw what had occurred the California winery won the red competition uh-huh. but the Texas winery overwhelmingly won the white competition. Oh wow! Yeah. Can you imagine that? Good for them. It was like the Judgment of Paris in 1976. This That's was right. this was the Judgment of California. It didn't get a lot of press.
4: <laughs> Still. For- pretty interesting,
2: though. I think it probably got a lot of press in Texas, but I'll tell you what. See, Lewis, if you did this, you took on, like, a, a California winery, a really good one, reputable... Big name winery, right? Yep. And you beat them in the competition?
4: That would be pretty wild.
2: Oh, my gosh. Alaska would go wild.
4: Yeah, it would. There'd be
2: parades up and down the street, the main street of Homer. Is it called Main Street?
4: Yeah, it is called
2: Main Street. Well, there you go. Let's get creative for that one. Anyway, there'd be a big old parade, people throwing blueberries and raspberries. It would be
4: fantastic. Yeah, Alaskans already have enough state pride. That would just... Give them an extra added boost.
2: This would be it. This would put Alaska at the top of the list. Yeah,
4: that's
2: right. Hey, listen, Lewis Maurer, it has been great talking to you. Uh, people got to discover your place. It's Bear Creek Winery and Lodging. They can go up there and stay too, right?
4: That's correct. Awesome. Yeah, we got two suites. We kind of keep it quiet so that the guests that do come and stay with us can enjoy the time here. We've got a cedar hot tub. There's horseshoe pits. We do a coffee bottle of wine in the room. So it's kind of a little romantic yeah. getaway type
2: of setup. How do you get to Homer? If you're coming from the rest of the world, where how, where do you fly into?
4: The easiest thing to do is get yourself to Anchorage. Most people fly in there. And then get a bush pilot. And then you can either get a commuter flight from there down to Homer or you can rent a car and come down. We're talking
2: awesome. commuter flights. We're not talking about a big jet now are we no uh-uh we were talking about something with a propeller right
4: oh definitely (laughs) usually seats about uh 15 people
2: in the meantime are you ready for the challenge the alaska versus anybody challenge
4: yeah all right
2: fun yeah let's do that that'll be fun that's going to make big news in homer and well it might make big news in the wine world period You never know. We told you that they make wine in every state, and now we've just proved it. Lewis Maurer, the general manager at Bear Creek Winery and Lodging in Homer, Alaska. If you want to check these guys out, it's bearcreekwinery.com, right? You got it. All right. Don't go anywhere, because coming up next, it's Sippin' with Sarah. Sarah Schneider, the wine editor of Sunset Magazine, on Grape Encounters Radio with David Wilson.
0: Every bottle of wine contains much more than fermented grape juice. It's really a time machine that can take you places you've never been before. At Grape Encounters Radio, we'll show you how it works. Listen carefully, and you'll be driving it in no time. It's time to take a quick break. It's just enough time for us to uncork your next Grape encounter.
2: a thirst for wine knowledge, be it trivia or the latest trends, there's a website that's overflowing with content that we've created just for you. It's GrapeEncounters.com, where you'll find literally hundreds upon hundreds of stories and interviews covering almost every topic imaginable. From the world's most colorful and renowned winemakers to unforgettable wine adventures, there's something for every wine lover at GrapeEncounters.com. Go ahead, log on, uncork, pour,
0: swirl, and sip. We're all guilty as sin. We open a costly bottle of wine and recork it with the intent of drinking the rest later. But later comes and goes, and that delicious wine also goes. South, that is. The Coravin is the most reliable way to enjoy your wine without any concern about the unconsumed wine going bad. And while the Coravin Wine Access System costs a bit more than other preservation systems, it does something they don't. It works. Perfectly, The Coravin is a beautifully engineered handheld device that gives you access to your wine through a small needle that you gently push straight through the cork. Inert argon gas is injected into the bottle, while as little or as much of the wine that you want flows right into your glass. The argon gas keeps your wine so safe, it's as though you never opened the bottle. Want to learn more? Simply click the Coravin link online at grapeencounters.com. A wine is a terrible thing to waste. Get your Coravin at GrapeEncounters.com. Nestled right in between two world-class wine countries, Paso Robles and San Luis Obispo,
2: the warm and inviting city of Atascadero is the perfect gateway to nearly endless wine country adventures. Cozy and oh-so-friendly, make historic Atascadero home base for adventures to hundreds of surrounding wineries, the nearby Pacific, and magical Hearst Castle, plus an amazing array of attractions from ziplining to delectable dining. Discover all that affordable Atascadero has to offer at visitatascadero.com.
0: She's earthy, honest, and sipping each week as a service to you. From Sunset Magazine, it's Sarah Schneider, and this is Sipping with Sarah on Grape Encounters Radio. Two
4: Chuck, Two Chuck. Chuck. I need 15 cases in the back of my truck. I just want to thank Chuck
2: for my Okay, and it is time for sipping with Sarah. And Sarah, a couple of days ago I got into a heated conversation with a wine wholesaler over the very same question that I'm gonna to pose to you today, and I have no idea what position you're gonna take on this one.
1: And I don't know what the question is. <laughs>
2: You too, because you were prepped for this show,
1: Sarah. <laughs> oh, right, right, okay. right.
2: <laughs> where were you? We should not drink wine before the show.
1: I know, something's wrong here.
2: Okay, the question came up in a conversation. We were actually talking about two-buck Chuck. Mm-hmm. You'd almost have to be dead not to know what two-buck Chuck is, because I guess Trader Joe's is all over the country now, right?
1: They are, they
2: are. Not everywhere, but you know, so some people don't know. But even I'm, I'm imagining people who don't have a Trader Joe's have had somebody bring them a bottle of two-buck Chuck.
1: But you know it's not two bucks anymore. $2.49. I know. I bought some just a few weeks ago. Why? Um, well, that's a secret. <laughs> no, no. I was I bought it to do a blind tasting with with some more expensive wine. And two buck chuck is like you say two forty nine a bottle now.
2: Yeah, and we should uh, actually do an entire show on two buck chuck because it's an interesting show. That and would this be fun. Actually, this actually is a nice lead in to it though, because the question that was posed in this impromptu conversation was when somebody loves their cheap bottle of wine, whatever it might be, two-buck chuck, you know, white Zinfandel, whatever it is, do we want to convert them up to something that's a a little better? And what I mean by that is this, is that there are a lot of people, obviously, that drink mass-produced wines, inexpensive wines, and a lot of people, especially the wine snobs, will poo-poo those people and belittle them for drinking inexpensive, you know, you know, mass-produced wine. And so in this conversation, when somebody was talking to me about teaching wine appreciation and getting them to, you know, try better, more expensive things, I posed the question, why would you do that? Because the remember, we're talking about people who love these wines, okay? And it's different than people who say, I don't like red wine. Where are you on this, Sarah?
1: Well, there's so many questions embedded in that. Yeah, I that saw your is, wheels were yeah. just like turning uh, they smoke, are turning smoke I'm, coming
2: out of ears and nose and everything.
1: There's an assumption in there that um, a more expensive wine is a better wine. Um, that could be debated. Oh man, are you
2: opening up a can of worms I now? I know because there are a lot of issues here. There are a lot all of right, issues. Go ahead.
1: But but we can keep it simple too. Whether
2: when, when when have we ever done that?
1: <laughs> we go in all directions. Okay. I think. Uh, but I think it's a huge question. It just came up for me a couple weeks ago. Um, and I was leading a seminar, I was moderating a seminar that had a number of winemakers involved. Um, and they were presenting their wines at all different price points. And one of them was in the low teens. And the audience, someone in the audience raised her hand and she said, I want to understand here what's going on because I tasted this $12 wine and I absolutely love it. But she said, I don't really like this fifty-dollar wine, right? Um, and she said, "Am I wrong?" And and that was such a loaded question with wrong and right um, about. So, what's the answer then? Well, my my quick answer to her then, uh, before the more thoughtful winemakers jumped in, was that on the lower price end, there's wine that is just made to jump out at you with fruit, generous fruit, and say, "Drink me right now." Um, it's just made for pure instant enjoyment. And that's what it's trying to do. It's the wine equivalent of soda pop. There you go. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't necessarily involve expensive wine growing or making. But then there's wine that's intended to make you think a little bit more. There are layers of interesting things underneath that don't necessarily immediately pop out. Um, and some people just aren't geared to respond to that or even get that. Um, but do they need to? to be? Do we need to push them there?
2: I liken it to going to the symphony. If you go to the symphony, you'll find different kinds of people there. You'll find the person who hears the oboe, they hear the cello, they hear the brass, they hear all of the different parts, and then you have the people who hear the symphony. It's the finished product. You know, it's kind of, it, it food's the same way, you know. Do you taste the frosting separate of the cake, separate of the filling, or do you just taste cake? Either way is okay with me.
1: Those are good analogies. It doesn't matter.
2: I say this, that, you know, you can get into a lot of trouble if you develop a passion for really good and oftentimes expensive wine. And wine can eat up a lot of your household budget.
1: That's true.
2: Yeah. So why try to convert somebody to something that is going to end up costing them if you drink a bottle of wine every other night, let's say. Some people drink more than that.
1: Uh, no comment here. No,
2: no, no comment here. Okay. <laughs> but if you try to convert them and let's say it's a 35 dollars bottle of wine and they drink three of those a week that adds that's up. that's that's the cost of your insurance
1: oh there's a your car payment right it, it is, does add up really quickly but i you know i actually kind of believe i don't kind of i do believe that people will automatically if they drink that wine they're appreciating right now and then allow themselves to to dip into some elaborately made wines i guess you could say I think there's a little bit of a natural progression that you'll, you're, you're you'll so come. Practical, I you swear, know, yeah. you, you start getting bored with this, the very simple one-note kind of. Wine. But
2: you know, Sarah, that you've met tons of people who will tell you that you know what, I am happy with my Sutter Home White Zinfandel. I don't want anything else.
1: Sure, and I actually still think Sutter Home does the best White Zinfandel. They were the first, and I think they're still the best.
2: And, there, and there's nothing nothing wrong with White Zinfandel. Nope. you know if you like it absolutely great. nothing and they do mm-hmm. a perfectly good job it's just soda poppy to me and right. that's okay because i i like a pepsi or a coke once in a while and by the way can't tell the difference but i'm going to leave you with this thought and i know you're going to jump on this one because this is your passion sarah schneider if you're happy with inexpensive wines Go exploring all the inexpensive wines out there because there's a gazillion of them. There are so many of them, and and it becomes fun for me to try to see what I can find for five or ten dollars.
1: I couldn't agree more. Um, there are gems among that in that sea. Um, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but not all inexpensive wine is created equal. And I drink an awful lot of cheap wine. It's it's part of my job. I mean, it's it's not hard. Out of a paper bag? <laughs> no, I do it proudly. Okay, right. um, It's not hard to find a $60 bottle of good wine. It is hard to find an $8 bottle of good wine.
2: Moral of the story, drink what you like. Don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't like it out of principle.
1: Big yes to that.
2: Okay. Sarah, I say sign out and go drink some really expensive wine.
1: Big yes to that.
2: (laughs) Okay. That's going to do it for Grape Encounters Radio. That's going to do it for Sipping with Sarah. It's not going to do it. We're
0: just going to do it again next week. I'm for that. Okay. Another yes. Your Grape Encounter isn't
1: over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition.